passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. As we begin this morning, I want you to, to just imagine that you have been tasked with um, writing a, a, a book about the life of Jesus. And I want you to consider and, and think about how, you, how would you start that book? And many of us, we would perhaps start it by telling the, the story of, of Jesus' miraculous birth, like we have in the Gospel of Luke. Some of us might even just say, hey, I, I want to focus, get right into the action. I want to I jump right in to Jesus' ministry when it kicks off, like, like the Gospel of, of Mark. Some of us might be like the Gospel of John, and hey, like, let's, let's focus on, on the Gospel here and, and remind ourselves, set the context from the very beginning, and... and and start with the, the pre-incarnate Jesus as a person, the second person of the Trinity, again, like the Gospel of John. I don't think any of us would start the way the Gospel of Matthew starts. The Gospel of, of Matthew starts with a genealogy by describing Jesus' line going back all the way to the person of Abraham. And, and for many of us today, this, this isn't something that really uh, seems like it fits for the, the beginning of the story of the most important story in the entire world, but instead something that you would probably see on Ancestry.com. Something that uh, is important, but maybe not something that you would lead with. And yet Matthew knows exactly what he's doing. Of course he does. It, it seems silly even to say that. Matthew knows exactly what he is doing by, by starting with a genealogy. Matthew has a purpose, and what we'll see this morning is that Matthew's purpose is worked out by starting with this genealogy, rooting the story of Jesus, not just his birth, not just uh, the, the, the Christmas story, but the entire story of Jesus is rooted in who Jesus is, in this gospel in this genealogy. And so what I want us to do this morning, I want us to take some time to, to actually look at the, the genealogy of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Uh, but because this isn't, the, um, th this isn't narrative like we've been going through for the last several months through the, the story of, of 1 Samuel, um, rather than working our way through the text and making observations and, and expositing uh, chunks of text and going verse by verse, uh, I'm going to read the entire text and then I'm going to share seven implications for us today from the genealogy of Matthew. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, please follow along as I read aloud, starting Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. 
and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the, ha- the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah, and Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you would speak through it just as you do every single time your people gather around your word and open it. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you still speak, and we ask that you would do just that this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Where do we start when we get to a genealogy? I think the first implication from this text is simply this. Christmas is good news. It's not good advice. Christmas is good news. It's not good advice. Matthew doesn't begin his gospel with once upon a time. He doesn't begin it with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He begins it with history. Everything that Matthew says here in this gospel actually happened. It actually took place. He roots everything about Jesus in history. It is historical. What does that have to do with advice and good news? Well, well, it has everything to do with it. Advice, no matter how good it may be, doesn't have to be historical. It is simply just counseling you on what you should do, what you must do. The focus is not on what has happened, but instead on what you must do. News, on the other hand, is completely and utterly different. It is rooted in what is something that has happened. It is rooted in history. It is not wise counsel about what you must do. It is, again, something that has already taken place. So I want you to imagine that you are living in a city that is about to be invaded by an invading army, and, and you're wondering, what exactly should we do? What does our city need? Well, for starters, it needs military advisors, doesn't it? It needs advice on, on someone to come and tell us how do we effectively fortify a city? Where do we place our troops? What do we do to, to fend off this invasion in this moment? But what if that invading army has already been intercepted? What if it has already been defeated? The town no longer needs advice on what we must do. We now need messengers. Someone to come and tell us, not good advice, but but the good news of victory. No longer do we need someone to come and say, hey, here's what you have to do. Now we need someone to say, here's what's already been done. And here in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins with good news, not with good advice, because we don't need good advice. You can go to Walmart, look at the self-help books, you'll find plenty of good advice and plenty of not-so-good advice. What we need is good news. 
And that's exactly what Matthew starts with. We need good news, not good advice, and that is the gospel. I mentioned earlier that Matthew knows exactly what he is doing here in this gospel by starting with a genealogy. The genealogy here lays a foundation for the gospel of Matthew, the gospel itself. That's going to be clear if you spend time looking at the rest of the gospel. It's it's apparent if you look at the very first verse of Matthew. Notice again what Matthew says in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew starts with a genealogy, but notice that Matthew ties Jesus' lineage back to two crucial players in God's providential plan to save humanity, to fix the brokenness of creation that we see in the Old Testament. He brings things back to David, and he brings things back to Abraham. That's the second implication from the genealogy of Matthew for us this morning. Jesus is the long-awaited king. Jesus is this long-awaited king. By mentioning Abraham here, by mentioning David here, Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of two of the biggest promises of the entire Old Testament. I want us to look at both of them. And we'll start with David because David is mentioned first by Matthew here in this text. Now, in God's providence over the last several months, because we've been in 1 Samuel, we have become pretty familiar with the person of David. 1 Samuel has revealed to us that David is the type of king that God desires to to lead his people, to rule over his people, because he will point God's people to God himself. And yet, we have also seen that David is far from perfect. David has many moments where we are left wondering, what exactly are you doing? And what we see from 1 Samuel, and we'll see this when we get to 2 Samuel as well, is that even though David is the type of king that God's people need, he isn't the king that God's people need. And David himself seems to recognize this. You look at some of the Psalms, and David is talking about this need for for someone greater, someone to to save him from his sin, this, this future king who will make all things right. Just look at Psalm 110, for example. But it's not only David who recognizes that that he's not the one who's going to fix everything. God himself seems to tell David that exact same thing as well. David, in spite of being this man after God's own heart, he's not the true king. But one day, the true king is coming. And that true king will come from David's line. In fact, God is so committed to this promise that he makes a covenant with David. He swears himself to David that one day there will be a king, a son of David, a child that comes from David's line who will be a forever king, a king who will usher in the kingdom of God. First Chronicles tells us about this promise that God makes to David. Consider First Chronicles chapter 17. God says, Now therefore, thus you shall surely say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you forever, wherever you go, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom." 
He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with these words, and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Don't miss the ending there of what God tells Nathan the prophet to pass on to King David. A son of David will one day be a forever king. And the rest of the Old Testament bears out that through all the ups of David's line, through all the downs of David's line, the true king has not come. In fact, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's where the promise is first recorded from God to David. There's this expectation that it is going to be Solomon. The son of David is going to be the first son of David, this man who is going to fix everything. And then you get through this story of of what Solomon is like in 1 Kings and you realize it's not him. He is not the one that we are waiting for. And you look at the rest of the story of the kings of David's line and you see no matter how good they are, no matter how bad they are, they are not the true king. And over the course of the generations following David, there is this hope, this expectation that begins to rise among the people of God that one day the king is going to come. And this is picked up by the prophets in the Old Testament, writing hundreds of years after David, we have this passage from the book of Isaiah, a passage, Isaiah 9, that's read seemingly every Christmas. It says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of, his, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love the way that text ends. The text ends with the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, the the text says, Isaiah the prophet says, there's this promise that God has made that one day there's going to be a king from the line of David who is going to come and save humanity. He's going to fix everything that's wrong in the world. And God is utterly committed. He's passionate about this plan to save people through the son of David. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this because that is God's passion to fix what's wrong with his creation. God is passionate, zealous about putting a king on the throne who will make all the wrong things right. And this king will reign forever. And Matthew, right here in the very first verse of his gospel, by saying that Jesus is the son of David, is tying this to this promise. This is the king that we have waited for. Matthew isn't just making that claim about Jesus, however. By saying that Jesus is the son of Abraham, 
He's making an even bigger claim than not just Jesus being the, the king of Israel. That there's something better, something more spectacular about who this Jesus is. This is the third implication of the genealogy found here in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is not just the long-awaited king, but Jesus is the king who will fix a broken world. That Jesus is the one who's going to fix a broken world. Not only does Matthew tie Jesus' lineage to David, this long-awaited king, he also ties Jesus' lineage to Abraham. And, and maybe we're like, oh, of course he does. Abraham is the father of Israel. All of Israel came from him, but he's so much more than that. God makes a promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. His name was Abram at the time. Notice the, the, the promise that God makes to Abraham. He says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 that he's going to use Abraham to bless all of the nations. And it's not a coincidence. If you flip open to 1 Chronicles chapter 17, 2 Samuel 7, both of those are the promise of, of God to David, and you open up to Genesis chapter 12, you will notice there's a lot of parallels between the promise God makes to, to Abraham in Genesis 12 and the promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7 in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. And the text is being very intentional because it's revealing to us God's plan to bless the nations. How is God going to use Abraham to bless the nations? It's not just by Abraham being a nice guy. It's not by the people of Israel being nice to those who are around them. He has a specific plan that comes through a future son. That's what Paul picks up on in Galatians chapter 3. He says that through this son, people from every nation will one day find hope and rest and salvation. Galatians chapter 3. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. This is an astounding claim from Paul here. He says that in, in Genesis chapter 3, this line about Abraham being a blessing to all the nations, that's the gospel. That here, in this moment, we have a declaration of what God is going to do, and it's not because Abraham's a nice guy. It's because a son is coming. A son of Abraham who will one day save the nations. Matthew Tying Jesus back to Abraham, making this startling claim. He's saying, the one that we have waited for, the one who is going to, to save the nations, to bless the nations, is Jesus. But if you notice, what I said that this passage, this implication is saying is, is, is a step further. It's not just God saving the nations through Jesus, this long-awaited king, but, but that he's fixing a broken creation. Where does that come from? 
To understand that, we have to, to consider the role that Abraham plays in the story of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham to follow him, comes right after the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, this moment where all of humanity gathers together to rebel against God, to reject God, says, you know what, we're going to ascend to to heaven, we're going to kick God out of heaven and establish our own kingdom, we're going to make our name for ourselves rather than making a name for God. And this is really the pattern that we see throughout the first 11 chapters of the Bible, that God, in spite of all of his goodness, in spite of all of his kindness toward humanity, toward his creation, is rejected by his creation, is rejected by humanity. Humanity chooses to rebel against God and his kindness. Instead of being a part of the kingdom of God, humanity says, no, we'll, we'll establish our own kingdom. Thank you very much. Nowhere is this clearer than in Genesis Chapter 3, in the garden, Adam and Eve, rather than being a part of the kingdom of God, decide to establish their own kingdom. They reject God and follow the serpent. And yet God's not done with them. We see that God gives a promise in Genesis chapter 3. says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that makes no sense if we don't understand the context. Because in this moment, God is talking to the serpent, the the serpent who led humanity astray, and saying that there is one day going to be a moment where a seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, a son is coming, who in spite of all the enmity between the serpent and humanity, who will step on the head of the serpent. This rebellion against God will be ended when a son comes. And you look at Genesis chapter 1 through 12, all of this is set up. People are rebelling against God. God, still always patient with humanity, provides a plan for them. This culminates in the promise to Abraham that we see in Genesis chapter 12. In you, all the nations will be blessed. A son is coming who will fix a broken creation because he is the king of all the nations. Let's keep moving. Another implication from this text, God may take his time, but he keeps his word. God may take his time, but he keeps his word. By beginning with a genealogy, Matthew makes it very clear to us that God doesn't work on our timetable. We just discussed the story of Abraham, how God promises that he will one day save the world through Abraham's family. Here's the surprising thing. Abraham lives 2,000 years before Jesus. This promise is made to Abraham, and then 2,000 years pass before God actually fulfills that promise. God's promise to rescue a broken creation in Genesis chapter 3 comes thousands of years before the time of Abraham. And we might wonder, what on earth took God so long to do what he has said that he would do? Why does it take God so long to make things right? And the answer is, ultimately, we don't know. We don't know God's timetable. 
we know from the testimony of Scripture that God isn't beholden to how we think that things should be done. But we do know that He will keep His promises. And it might not look the way we would think. It might take far longer than you or I would like. But God is faithful to keep His word. John chapter 11, Jesus receives word that one of his closest friends is sick and is dying, and everyone expects when Jesus hears that word that he's going to set out right away to go heal his close friend before he dies. But the text is very clear. If you look at John chapter 11, it's, it's actually quite startling that rather than setting out right away, Jesus stays put, and he explains that he stays put so that his friend will die. And it's a startling moment where we, we say, what on earth? Why is, why is Jesus letting his friend die? And then you see the rest of John chapter 11. This isn't negligence from Jesus, but instead it's part of Jesus' plan. Jesus has something bigger and better in store for his friend Lazarus. Not just to save him from sickness, but to rescue him from death. Jesus in John chapter 11 is doing what God has done from the very beginning of time. He keeps his promises, but he keeps his promises on his timetable and in his way and not in our own. You feel like God has let you down if he hasn't kept up his end of the bargain. Remember the promise of Christmas. God keeps his word but he does it on his timetable and not on yours. There's a fifth implication of this text. Jesus comes for outsiders. Let's say we've come to grips with everything we've, we've talked about so far with this, this genealogy. Notice when we turn to the contents of this genealogy itself, there's some surprising stuff in this genealogy. Ancient times, genealogies were a lot like resumes. You would, um, in, in a culture that, that emphasized family, emphasized lineage far more than, than we do today, listing your genealogy was a way of putting your best foot forward. We actually have records of people like King Herod expunging people from the public record of his genealogy because he didn't want to be known to be related to them. And so in this culture where you would always want to put your best foot forward, you would be selective in saying who you came from, who you were related to, Jesus' genealogy is surprising because of who is mentioned. We get to Matthew's genealogy and we notice that not only does he not omit some of the, the wicked people that he comes from, but he actually goes out of his way to mention some of these people in the genealogy. Let's take a, a look at a few examples. Notice that there are five women mentioned in Jesus's genealogy slash resume. We have these women who were almost never mentioned in first century genealogies, and yet Matthew does make mention of five of them. Who are they? The first one mentioned is Tamar, a Canaanite woman, who dresses herself up as a prostitute and commits incest with her father-in-law. Another one is Rahab, another Canaanite who is called throughout the book of Joshua, Rahab the prostitute. Another is Ruth, 
who comes from the people of Moab, excluded from the congregation of the people of Israel up to the 10th generation. Then we have Bathsheba. We're not sure if she was a Canaanite or not, but she married one. And she committed adultery with King David. Then we have Mary, who, as we will see in, later in the Gospel of Matthew, everyone suspected of committing adultery and being immoral because she had Jesus before she was actually married to Joseph. In the first century, women were on the fringe of society in the first place, and then you add the types of people that Matthew does here in this genealogy, prostitutes, adulteresses, these people who are suspected of having children out of wedlock, these foreigners. What is Matthew doing here? I think Matthew is making a declaration about the type of people that are welcome to come to Jesus, the type of people that Jesus came for. He comes for those who are rejected in society. He comes, with, comes to save those who have shameful past. He comes for those who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. He came for all people, not just those who had the right blood. Our sermon title, A Lineage Fit for a King, of course, is ironic because when you look at the genealogy of Matthew, Matthew emphasizes anything but in Jesus' genealogy. He includes these names not to show us that God plays favorites with these types of people, but instead to say, you know what, anyone and everyone is welcome in God's family. Jesus came to save these types of people, these outsiders, because all of us are outsiders because of sin. Another implication from this text, Jesus not only came for outsiders, he also came for the wicked. Jesus' genealogy is not just filled with societal outsiders, it's also filled with wicked people, with immoral people. We could virtually look at anyone on this list as they're mentioned here, but I just want to focus on two. The first one is Judah. Judah in verse 3, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. You look at the story of Judah in the book of Genesis, and there's no way of getting around it. He's, he's a terrible person. He's, he's, just, he's a terrible person. He's, he's so consumed with himself. He's, he's so selfish. He's, he's so consumed by his, his passions that when his sons die, he decides that he's going to do everything that is socially acceptable to, to put his daughter-in-law to death by cutting her out of the family so that he does not have to take care of her. And yet, at the same time, Judah unknowingly gets that same daughter-in-law pregnant with twins. Seems like a nice guy. Jesus' genealogy emphasizes this by mentioning both twins. Jesus is not descendant from both of these twins, He's only descended from Perez. But by mentioning both, it's emphasizing the type of person that Judah is. Another one that we see in this text is David. David, of course, is this man after God's own heart, but he, as we said earlier, he's far from perfect. And that is made very clear when we see in verse 6 this. 
and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The text makes it very clear by not even mentioning Bathsheba's name, instead by saying that she is the wife of this Canaanite, Uriah the Hittite, that David is not that great of a guy. Jesus' genealogy highlights the wickedness of God's chosen people, Israel. He doesn't do this to make ourselves feel better about the things that we've done in our life, because at least we didn't do that. No, Matthew is making this statement that, that those people who are in desperate need of grace, even they are not too far gone for God. Even they are welcomed into God's family. That there is grace. That God has come for the wicked like you and me. There's just one final implication that I want us to look at. It's probably one of the most important things from this text. Jesus comes to give us rest. Jesus comes to give us rest. Matthew draws attention to this at the very end of his genealogy. He highlights the numbers of, of generations between Abraham and David, and then David and the, and the Babylonian exile, and the Babylonian exile, and Jesus himself. We don't have time to go into it, but Matthew is, is intentionally selective in who he includes and who he doesn't include in his genealogy. He skips people intentionally. This word fathered could also mean ancestor of, and he's doing something by highlighting 14 from, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and again, 14 from the exile until Jesus himself. We have these, these groups. We have six sets of seven. And then Jesus starts a seventh group. He's the beginning of a seventh group. And if you look at the, the Old Testament, you look at the significance of, uh, of seven and, and how things are, are, are laid out in the Old Testament, one of the things that's so significant about the number seven is the book of Genesis. On the seventh day, God rests. And once a week, God commanded that his people, Israel, would rest from their labor. He called this the Sabbath. And I think that one of the things that, that Matthew is doing here in chapter 1 with all of these numbers of generations here is saying that Jesus, by beginning the seventh group of seven, is the beginning of true rest. It's a declaration from Matthew that Jesus brings rest to those who need it. It is a foretaste of what Jesus will do for us when we enter into his kingdom in death and also what we will experience forever in the new creation. Do you know what Matthew is telling you here in this moment? He's telling you that Jesus is the only one who can give you rest. You will not find rest any other place, that Jesus is the one who gives you rest from strivings, from trying to prove that you are good enough, from your busyness, from all of your anxieties. Jesus is the one who can give you rest from cultural pressures to maintain appearances. Christmas is a message of rest. And that's how I want us to end this morning. This message of rest.
If we were to sum up this text, I think it would simply be this, come to Jesus for rest. That's an important thing for us to hear this morning, to hear every morning that that Jesus is the one who can give us rest. There was an early church father, Augustine, one of my favorite quotes from him is, I've read in Plato and Cicero many things, both wise and beautiful, but I've never read or heard, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Only Jesus can give rest to weary, heavy-laden souls. Come to Jesus for rest. This Christmas, cling to that promise. Rest in that promise that you can find rest in Jesus. Come to Jesus for rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for speaking through it. God, we ask that you, in your grace and your mercy, would help us to be a people who come to you for rest. That we would lay our deadly doing down and find rest in Jesus. Help us, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.